In the opening episodes, we focused upon the establishment of the Tudor dynasty and some of the problems it faced. Before moving on to the reign of Elizabeth, we need to step back and examine a number of key developments that shaped the Tudor period and indeed the modern world. So in this episode, the third episode of the series, we're going to try and answer one basic question. That is how England was changing over the course of the 16th century. What effects was this having upon society? Several points are clear. First of all, still much about the 16th century was medieval in character. Secondly, there was also significant areas where great change was occurring, such as land holding and trade, and these brought about dramatic and lasting changes. 16th century is an interesting period to examine because it in many ways represents two worlds, the late medieval world and the beginnings of a new early modern era. It is a period that witnessed a crucial transformation with a great deal which differentiated it from the earlier centuries, yet much that remained the same. A society is not transformed overnight, and so we see a blend of old and new. It's a gradual process. Although Henry VIII did his best to prove this wrong when he took religious matters into his own hands in 1534, writers of the period noticed the changes. One writer believed that kingship had changed and made special note of the pride and power of Henry VIII. Another noticed changes in housing and farming. Another, the manufacturing and industry of the middling sort, what we would call the middle class. And yet another commented on the rejuvenated state of urban culture. Contemporary writers seem to sense that change was taking place, that England of the 1550s was different from what it had been a century before. The impression is that the Tudor period brought change over time. English society still faced many of the same problems that it had faced during the Middle Ages, but in at least some respects it responded differently. For example, England was still plagued by regularly occurring famines and plagues that were common part of the medieval world. There were high rates of mortality following bad harvests in 1519 to 21, 1527 to 29, 1544 to 45, 1549 to 51, 1554 to 56, 1586 to 87, 1594 to 1597. The famine of 1555-57 was particularly harsh, to top it off coincided with an outbreak of influenza. 16th century also saw outbreaks of bubonic plague, pneumonia, smallpox, and a viral disease called the sweat, which happened at least once every decade. Yet these epidemics appear to have been sort of localized and certainly not nowhere close to what it had been during the Black Death of the 14th century. At some time or another, most areas were hit by an outbreak of disease. This might take maybe 10% of the population. Centers like London, Colchester, or Norwich, where there were large populations living in close quarters, were extremely vulnerable. Such cities and towns remained as they had for decades. They were extremely dirty, often covered with huge buildup of animal and human waste, and this attracted rats and flies, and it contaminated water supplies. Yet it appears that during the 16th century, fewer epidemics were occurring, and they were taking fewer victims. The reasons behind this are varied, but without question, available information suggests that England was economically healthier, better able to meet the challenges offered by disease and famine. And much of this is directly related to a rapid increase in England's population. English population in 1300 was at roughly about five and a half million people. But famine brought on by bad harvest, widespread disease that affected livestock, 
poor weather conditions, part of the beginning of the Little Ice Age, uh, numerous devastating wars such as the Hundred Years' War, and of course the outbreak of the Black Death um, in the 1340s, meant that the population was hit extremely hard. By 1377, it's estimated it had dropped from 5.5 million people to 2.5 million people. In 1450, it had continued to decline down to 2 million people. Yet we start to see it change at the end of the 15th century and into the 16th century. By 1525, it's estimated that it had bumped up just a little to 2.3 million. Yet in 1601, 4.1 million people, almost doubling in 70-odd years. The recovery of the population was slow after the Black Death. In the 15th century, the population growth stagnated because of all the disease, low fertility rates, people married later, and of course many young men were dying in warfare. But from the 1480s, there appears to have been a general increase in prosperity. Although in the 16th century, as it wore on, the lower classes of society experienced increased hardship. But more people were getting married. They were getting married at a younger age, and therefore producing more children. There was an increase in money wages as the old system of bondage to the land fell into disuse. And the average life expectancy soared to the great old age of 38 years. England was still overwhelmingly rural in character, about 90% of the population living in the countryside, and the other 10% in towns and in London. Yet these places were still quite small. In 1500, London had a population estimated at 60,000 people. Norwich, 12,000. Bristol, 10. And then there were a host of smaller towns like Oxford, Cambridge, Canterbury, that had between 2,500 and 5,000 people. But by 1603, London had reached a population of 215,000. Other places like Norwich and Bristol, they also saw increased growth, but nothing like what we see in the capital. Towns or urban life are one of the key areas where we see a definite transition or even transformation taking place in the 16th century. Some historians have gone as far as arguing that many towns in this period had their identities remade. As towns expanded, they took on new roles. They were quite different, although sometimes an extension of their medieval counterparts. So we must begin by recognizing there was a great deal of regional variation from county to county, shire to shire, region to region. For example, most urban development centered upon the eastern counties around London, and even many of these remained quite small. Scotland remained far less urbanized than England. Its principal city of Edinburgh not reaching a population of 40,000 until 1740. In Wales, towns remained somewhat unique, as they were largely the result of English occupation, therefore remained something of a separate entity or presence in the Welsh landscape. However, as a rule, many of the towns in England were transformed in some form or another. We do see a general increase in population. Many towns begin to emerge as centres of manufacturing, and towns also became increasingly important as markets, as centers of consumption. By the middle of the 16th century, it was common for many towns to have several marketplaces. And what we see is this interesting transition where, you know, traditionally you would have the maybe the village green a marketplace. People would come on a Saturday or Wednesday, whatever day was market day, and they would bring their wagon, set up shop, 
kind of like a boot sale, and sell out of the back of their wagon. What we see in the Tudor period is that this starts to, to be sort of focused on those areas, and instead of out of the wagon, they're now selling out of shops, and the shops become permanent. So this is all about a diversifying economy and a growth in material culture. The dramatic rise in population created an increased market and more demand for agricultural products. These conditions offered some farmers the opportunity to practice a form of capitalist agriculture as the markets in the growing urban centers, particularly London, offered high prices, almost constant demand for foodstuffs. This is not to say that agricultural methods had improved significantly, as they had not. They were still based on a lot of the same poor practices that had dominated the Middle Ages. But there was increased consumption, and this meant that there was a, a desire to try and make the land more profitable. So we see increased competition for land. We see new areas being reclaimed, um, wetlands being drained, land being brought under production. As well, many landlords began to enclose much of the common land on their estates, making the, that land more productive. But this does create a problem. This is what we talk about when we speak of enclosure. There were four main types of enclosure. First, enclosure that led to a change of land use from pasture to arable. Secondly, enclosure of common arable from common pasture. Third, piecemeal enclosure, where maybe a few acres are enclosed here and there, maybe close to the manor house. And fourth, enclosure of unity of possession, where one landowner gains control of a block of land and he wants to consolidate it. There's a great deal of regional variation, but at least in some areas, enclosure transformed the landscape. In some areas, large tracts of land were drained or reclaimed. You know, they might have been lost to flooding. Now they're being drained and they're being brought under production. And as time passed, we see more and more experiments in new types of fertilizers and crop rotations. What we see in the 16th century is a very gradual shift from the medieval to an early modern economy, which would remain in place until the agricultural and industrial revolutions of the late 18th century. Agricultural improvement promoted economic growth, but it had a negative effect as it very greatly distressed peasants who were losing the common land which they depended upon for their livelihoods. Increased production generated prosperity for landlords, but impoverished the wage earner. And so the effect of this was to polarize society into two dominant groups, rich and poor. In 1500, we see an increased gulf between rich and poor developing. The rush for profits in agriculture broke down the traditional ideals of good lordship and social responsibility that existed previously. Those in the upper levels of society, the peers, the gentry, and the urban elite, they improved their diets. They built bigger houses. They were more comfortable. Their furniture was nicer. Their tableware was better to eat from. It was more sophisticated. So they generally were living better. So in short, the 16th century witnessed a rapidly growing material culture. We see this in many places around the country, but as one example, I would point to the town of Lewis in East Sussex. The town of Lewis benefited greatly from this newfound wealth of local and London families. Um, being close to the South Coast, many people would try and escape the stench and the, the heat of London in the summer, and they would build summer homes down in Sussex. And there, because of this, Lewis and its surrounding area 
began to thrive. We see new houses being constructed. We see more trade coming into the town. And we see a number of grand buildings being established in the town itself. Wealthy traders and craftsmen are emerging because they're doing all the building work and they're all the trade. And so they are investing uh, in better homes. The larger alehouses were turned into hostelleries, as after the Reformation, there was no longer monasteries to put up travelers. And so we see the establishment of hotels. So basically, a place like Lewis became a very vibrant market town, a very busy center. And all the surrounding area benefited from that. But still, the poor lived in the most squalid conditions. The streets were still littered with refuse, human and animal offal and disease like typhoid and plague were still regular visitors. The poor saw their living conditions and diet deteriorate. The change in agriculture pushed many off the land, leaving large numbers of peasants to roam the countryside in search of work. Many were forced to beg or steal in order to survive. An official survey of 1569 put the number of vagrants or sturdy beggars in England at 13,000. Now this represents only 0.4% of the total population. It's not a large figure. Yet property owners in the government consider them a very serious threat, especially during times of famine or political uncertainty. So this social polarization which took place still allowed for some social mobility. Young men involved in commercial agriculture who acquired an education might move up the social scale with time. Yet such examples were rare, even among young men, and women had almost no means whatsoever of improving their social status except through marriage. Some women did serve as church wardens, manorial officials, or school teachers, but they were restricted by common law, which regarded wives as being legally under their husband. Some changes were underway which began to offer relief in respect of their rights of inheritance and the rights to property settled on them uh, at marriage. Common and municipal law allowed widows to hold land and to trade in their own right, and London permitted married women to trade separately from their husbands within city limits. But otherwise, discrimination was severe, especially for single women. In the 16th century, status remained very important, as did wealth, but the two did not necessarily go together. The main indicator of social status was land. Landowners were viewed as gentlemen. The professions, doctors, lawyers, clergy, university graduates, and army officers also had acquired a special status, but merchants and craftsmen did not, even though many of them may have acquired more wealth than many landowners. The only way for a merchant to increase his social status and become part of the gentry was through investing in land. And this was often difficult to do as very little land was available. Titles and honors were controlled by the crown. They were only given out to those that the crown wanted to confer special status upon. At the top of society were the peers, the great landowners. In 1509, there were 42 peers in the land. In 1603, 55. This is because admission to the ranks was exclusive. It was controlled by the monarch. Yet this small number of peers held 10% of land in England. Next down the social scale were the knights. And here we see a definite break with the past. Knighthood originally involved a military obligation. But in the 16th century, this was no longer the case. The use of knights had kind of went out with cannons and the, the uh, flintlock. Yeah. And so knighthood was generally conferred upon 
a dozen or so leading families of each county, and it was based upon the yearly revenue of their estates. And generally, you had to have about 6,000 acres to have the kind of wealth that would get you made a knight. The gentry were more difficult to define. In 1540, there were approximately 5,000 gentry families in England. By 1640, this number had risen to 15,000. As this figure suggests, the gentry class was expanding rapidly during the late Tudor and early Stuart period, by this point had become a driving force in society. And there was one simple reason for this, trade. England was late getting into trade and colonization of the New World, although it had been involved in exploration for as long as most of its rivals. When it did begin in earnest, it would face a variety of challenges from other powers such as Spain, Portugal, and the Dutch and also their own misguided misperceptions of the world and what they could expect. England sent out explorers as early as 1497 when John Cabot reached the shores of Newfoundland under a commission from Henry VII. But Henry VII was preoccupied with establishing his Tudor dynasty with all those domestic problems he had, and therefore he didn't bother to sponsor any further voyages. Cabot's tales of, new, of the New World bounty led to English fishing on the Grand Banks, but not really much else. The English crown basically was uninterested in exploration until near the end of Elizabeth I's reign. During this time, England was preoccupied with wars with France, Scotland, and with colonizing Ireland. However, during this time, the English government did set out to undermine its old rival Spain, the commercial hegemony of the Netherlands. And England did this in a variety of ways. Primarily, it formed what were known as jock, jock. It formed what were known as joint stock trading companies to tap the potential of Asia and Africa as well as the Baltic and Mediterranean. In a joint stock trading company, individuals bought shares in a company and received dividends on their investment, while a board of directors ran the company and made the important business decisions. Joint stock companies made it easier to raise the capital necessary for trade ventures overseas. They also spread around the risk and could provide great returns on investments. In 1555, England established the Muscovy Company um, to develop trade in the Baltic and find a Russian route to the Orient. The Royal African Company was established in 1588 to develop the African slave trade. The Levant Company was established in 1592 to organize and promote trade in the Mediterranean. And the East India Company was set up in 1602 to establish a direct ocean route to Asia. In the last decades of the 16th century, there was something of a flurry of exploration with individuals like Sir Francis Drake, Walter Raleigh, Richard Hacklett the Elder and Younger campaigning for English exploration of North America. Many argued for the practicality and necessity of exploration and colonization. New World military posts could act as a base in which to assault Spanish power. And privateering by the likes of Sir Francis Drake and others seriously challenged Spain's supremacy in the New World, and it initiated Britain's activity overseas. Through acts of piracy, Britain was able to challenge the position of Spain and partake in its riches, gaining valuable experience in the New World at the same time. It was also a way in which England could achieve economic self-sufficiency. It was a way of spreading the Protestant religion. Overseas expansion could create American markets for English manufactured goods. And it may also give them a Northwest Passage to the Orient.
and this was very significant due to the spice trade. In the spice trade, there was enormous money to be made. In the Banda Islands, 10 pounds of nutmeg cost less than one English penny. In London, the same spice sold for two pound, two, uh, 10 shillings, a markup of 60,000%. Small sackful of the spice was enough to set up a man for life and would get him a very nice home and a servant. Of course, it wasn't easily gotten. The distances were great and the journey was fraught with dangers. Disease, such as scurvy, dysentery, malaria, were always present. There were hostile natives and competition from the Portuguese, the French, the Dutch. But of course, it could pay huge dividends. The English captain Middleton spent £3,000 on cloves, a cargo that on return to, England, to London sold for £36,000. In the early stages, trade and colonization was hampered by two key things. First off, a lack of finances. And secondly, misperceptions of the environment. The financial problem was difficult, but largely solved through the establishment of these joint stock companies. The problem was further alleviated in 1603 when James VI of Scotland became James I of England. King James inherited a huge debt, and in order to raise money, he began selling titles, granting charters to various groups and individuals in exchange for loans to the crown. This enabled promoters to receive royal sanction for their undertakings, open the door for religious and political dissidents to find a place they could call their own. This was an extremely important step because it meant that in the long run, England, unlike Spain, France, and the Netherlands, produced ordinary people who were willing to emigrate, who were willing to work for a living. After 1603, the door was open to colonization, but colonies developed very slowly due to English misperceptions of the environment. English expectations about weather patterns in North America were based on the common sense assumption that climate is constant in any latitude around the globe. Newfoundland, which is south of London, was therefore expected to have a moderate climate. Virginia was expected to be like southern Spain. This perception led to countless failed colonization attempts, high death rates, and disappointed investors. Despite the growing evidence to the contrary, colonists continued to cling to their inherited notions about the climate. And what made matters worse was that their timing was terrible. The late 16th century was right when we see the, the coldest period of what we call the Little Ice Age, which began in the, the 1250s and went to about 1700. The greatest intensity of this cold period uh, globally was from 1550 to 1700. So right when the English started to wake up to the idea of colonizing and trading overseas. The severest winter cold and least summer warmth occurred in the 1590s. This was a period when it was regular, very cold spells and very difficult times. During this period, the global mean temperature was likely a degree centigrade lower than the period between 1890 and 1950. The climate of North America was of immense importance to the English because they believed their self-definition was at stake. English culture was seen as a product of the temperate English climate, which fostered, quote, mechanical and politic arts, and the further humanizing of society. It was commonly believed that English could only thrive in climates that were moderate. If they were to move into tropical climates, their essential character would disintegrate. At worst, they might die in the tropics. but at the very least, they might degenerate to become like a Spaniard. 
They saw them as being culturally and physically suited to those regions, but inferior to themselves. Connection between climate and character was supported by the medical lore of the period. An Englishman moving to a hot climate would become hot and fiery, quick-tempered and indolent. Such beliefs became a real problem when people began colonizing North America. Since colonial promoters assumed that climate was the same at any given latitude, they also assumed that the same products, animal, vegetable, mineral, would be the same. In Virginia, writers hoped of finding gold, silver, and pearls, justifying their expectations by reference to Japan, Persia, and China. Colonial promoters expected the colonists they sent to North America to produce the goods that they bought from France and Spain and Portugal, so wine, silk, olive oil, spices, and sugar. Having colonies that could produce such items would benefit England by freeing them of relying on their traditional enemies for these products. Reports from the West Indies showed that such crops as sugar and wine could grow there. The Indies were seen as dangerous because of the heat and because they were so close to Spanish territories. So Virginia was seen as being a much safer place. From the beginning, colonists acted on their own beliefs about what would grow. Ships headed for Renoke in the 1580s called it the West Indies, where they picked up a variety of tropical plants for testing in the Carolinas. When the plants failed, the colonists continued in their beliefs, arguing they must have been damaged in transport, or that the proper time for planting had passed. Few thought to look to their own immediate environment and determine what was growing um, in that area that they could then use. The few that did this noted that plants such as sugarcane were not found in the area, but blamed this on the natives' lack of knowledge, failure to develop the region's potential. So the early colonists went ahead and struggled with crops destined to failure. In Virginia, the Virginia Company concentrated its efforts on producing wine, uh, wine grapes, and silk production, both of which failed miserably. This was not only due to the environment, but also the fact that in order to grow many of these specialized crops like wine, you needed specialist experience in their production. And all of these people were foreigners, therefore they weren't welcomed by the English colonists. By the 1620s, it was becoming increasingly clear that the southeast of North America was colder than anticipated, therefore not conducive to the growing of tropical crops. So by the 1620s, two trends emerged. First, the colonists began to adapt to their actual environment, adopting native crops such as tobacco and growing English grains and Indian corn for food. Secondly, that there was a continued reluctance from all involved in England and North America to accept the facts. Writers continued to argue that the region would live up to its potential and produce the tropical products England needed. So this real problem here was perception, that perception was distorted by travelers and others who visited New England and the eastern seaboard of North America in the summer months only. Such travelers gave general accounts of the climate based on their observations of a few months of great summer weather. At the same time, in Europe, winters were extremely cold. They were much harsher than normal. And so many believed that when things went back to normal in Europe, the same would take place in the New World. And third, there were also individuals like Richard Whitbourne, a sea captain and promoter of Newfoundland, who intentionally misled prospective colonists. This meant that early colonists were ill-prepared physically and psychologically for the colonial environment. In order for the colonies to be successful, the English had to gather information on climate and get past their preconceived notions of what North America should be like. What was necessary was a complete re reorientation or restructuring of the colonist worldview. 
how they perceive the environment, geography, and so on, and what they hope to get out of it. Once this was overcome, the door was open for increased colonization and trade, and with this, newfound wealth for many in English society would be realized.